It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Throughout American history... LGBTQ plus citizens have fought to defend our rights and freedoms. From the founding of our nation to the Civil War, from the trenches of the two world wars to Korea and Vietnam, and from Afghanistan to Iraq. They fought for our country even when our country wouldn't fight for them. And even as some were forced to hide who they were or to hang up their uniforms. And today we reaffirm that transgender rights are human rights. And that America is safer and better when every qualified citizen can serve with pride and dignity. Now that's real progress. And our work isn't done until we create a safe and supportive workplace for everyone, free of discrimination, harassment, and fear. Because nobody should have to hide who they love to serve the country that they love. That was America's new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. Uh, That's when he first took office. He reversed President Trump's policies on allowing transgender persons to serve in the military embracing transgender persons, making the military and U.S. tax dollars pay for transition surgeries, and making them, uh, allowing them to sit out uh, time spent in the military while they recovered from those surgeries. It's an amazing thing, and he did, he did it all in the guise of helping America's military. What's happening with America's military? How is it that it seems to have lost its collective mind? Why is it that so many good men are leaving? And uh, many are concerned that we are leaving our nation defenseless. Well, uh, two such persons are friends of mine, especially David Horowitz, who's been a long time a friend of mine with the Freedom Center uh, in in San, uh, San Francisco. And joining him in writing this new booklet called Disloyal, How the Military Brass is Betraying Our Country, is Daniel Greenfield. Daniel is an investigative reporter with the Freedom Center. He's also a Shulman Journalism Fellow. Uh, he's also known as Sultan Kish. That's the name under which he blogs. He's an expert in Islamic terrorism on Israel and all kinds of things, as you will see. He's a great writer, and he's agreed to join us today to talk about what's happening with America's military. Daniel, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me back. Hey, just a couple of personal questions. I'm sure I've asked you this before, but it's been a long time. You know, David Horowitz, uh, who is the founder and and your friend, I'm sure, and he's a longtime friend of mine, has a fascinating past. He was a radical of the 60s, and that's really how he and I became connected in terms of my first uh, introduction to David. And he's become such a staunch 
clear-thinking conservative, and he's done so much for the country to bring clear, uh, freedom, uh, clarity of thought. And Daniel, when I read your writing and I talk to you, I sense the same thing. But my question is, how in the world did you and David intersect? Do you have a similar past? How is it that you have such an understanding for the left that you do? Well, we are both Jewish originally and from New York, but I think we intersected largely because of our activism, because we think about issues in the same way, and because we are both determined to fight for our country. I did not come out of the left. I came out of a traditional religious household, um, child of actually Soviet dissident uh, who fought against communism in the Soviet Union. So um, not quite the same in that regard, but we ended all ended up in the same place, and I think that's the very important part. Now wait a second. Did I miss? Did you say your? Did you say one of your family members was a dissident in the Soviet Union? Yes. Uh, can you say who? Well, my mother was a uh, dissident in the Soviet Union. Yes. Well, that says a lot, uh, Daniel. That just says a lot to me, and it it explains certainly your understanding. And uh, David has the understanding from the other side of the coin, so it says a lot. Now, why in the world do you blog under the name Sultan Kish? I love it, by the way. Did you? And by and second question, before I let you answer the first one, did you uh, did you want to be anonymous initially, or and then is that why you had such a clever name? Because now people know who you are. So that's the second question. Well, I go back to the ancient uh, cuneiform days of blogging, uh, back when dinosaurs roamed the internet. <laughs> so this was originally a personal site that was just combining various observations. It was not originally political. It became political as the country came into a worse and worse place. Certainly by the time Obama came into office, it was full-time political. So I've kind of switched it to my name, Daniel Greenfield, but the self-ignition part is a reminder of a past when things were a little less critical. Yeah. Yes, you know. And more it, humorous. Yeah, Exactly. There's so little humor. I, I'm, it's, uh, I, my, my humor, and this actually will link to your Russian past, I, I find, uh, you know, that the Russians have such a great sense of humor, and it's really sardonic, kind of, uh, it makes you smile, but not ha-ha. And I think it's because of the, uh, I think you might agree, I'll ask you if you do agree, that because of the sad past, and I mean centuries and centuries, uh, brutality and uh, difficulty in Russia, uh, there has developed a, a sense of humor that is, I don't know, you describe it. H help me. Well, how would you describe the Russian sense of humor? You know, Soviet anecdote, the classic Soviet anecdote is becoming much more relevant in America. And one of my favorite examples is a man who goes to a dentist. And the dentist says, you have to open your mouth. And the man shakes his head, you refuse to open his mouth. And that's says, really, I can't work on your teeth. And you if you don't open your mouth, why won't you open your mouth? And the man says, I'm afraid to open my mouth. And you know, there's a like, typical Soviet anecdote created on the Soviet Union. There is a joke there. There's a joke that you can't actually say, and it's a joke about the jokes you can't actually tell. Because it's dangerous to open your mouth. It's dangerous to open your mouth in America today. Uh, because if you say the wrong thing, you will be canceled. You will be sanctioned. You will be deplatformed. All sorts of things will happen to you. So you tell a joke, and the people who actually understand what the joke is really about, they get it. And it's, the joke is not just about ha-ha, it's about communicating about the state of affairs and touching base with somebody by saying things that can't be said. It's a secret code, and unfortunately, that's the kind of humor that's making a comeback in America today. Uh, it's not even so making a comeback because we never had it, because we were a free country, but the kind of Soviet humor is now in America. Yes, I totally, totally agree with you. 
and people will discover that as we as we move on. And Daniel, by the way, I'm guessing that you have been punished by social media in some form, but I don't know. Have you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, if you can name a big tech company, it's sanctioned me in some way. Uh, I used to be the first result for Daniel Greenfield on Google. Then about a year ago, I suddenly became the eighth result, and it hit my personal blog and my articles on Front Page Magazine at the same time, making it very obvious this was a targeted thing. This was not just a general algorithm change. Uh, Facebook on Twitter, uh, I'm hardly visible to my followers and subscribers. Uh, there have been other things, financial, that have happened, but this is just really the kind of story that so many conservatives have to tell, especially people who challenge uh, the current political narrative. And now I've been challenging the current narrative for a while now. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center one point named my blog as a hate group. That's how bizarre the attacks have been. And these attacks now get rolled into um, big tech platforms uh, when they decide who to censor, who to deplatform, who to remove, because they claim the Southern Poverty Law Center and organizations like it are experts who are determining who should be sanctioned. Yes, and I have certainly spoken about that, but it's been a long time. There have been so many other things happening since the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, reared its ugly head, I guess, in the 60s or 70s. But we've talked about it a great deal, Daniel, because I was they labeled me as a, a women against Islam. I was one of 12 women. It was At the time, it was Ann Coulter and oh, Judge Janine, a whole bunch of people. And we were on this list, and they did a rendering of our faces and then pl- actually put in their target list... Uh, not our personal addresses, but our geographical location. And that was when people in America were being beheaded, attacked. You know, this was during the the scary days after 9-11 uh, when uh, we, we were not allowed to criticize Islam. And so, yeah, they're wicked, and uh, they've targeted most of my friends, actually. So I just wanted people to know who the Southern Poverty Law Center is. And I need to also explain, if you could just give me this opportunity, uh, during the uh, Trump years, we were able to push them back a lot because during the Obama years, the Pentagon, the FBI, all used the SPLC for their <laughs> to reference for a hate list. Go figure. Uh, and uh, so they, they were very free about who they called haters, and it was very damaging and dangerous. So FRC led an effort to, to stop that. We had great success. And now that Joe Biden is in the office, they're back, shall we say. And Daniel, isn't the FBI once again using them as a reference for hate groups? They're denying it, but they're absolutely using them. And uh, there's now just a welter of organizations that are me that are similar to the Southern Poverty Law Center. So they build these, uh, the phalanx of lusting organizations, which is what the left does. And these organizations all claim to be doing similar things. And then um, they turn to this and they say, well, four, five, six organizations have all signed off on this, which means it must be true. It's a consensus. The consensus is, of course, completely manufactured. Uh, but there's been a boom that's uh, been driven really by big tech companies, particularly Facebook, um, who are funding a lot of these organizations to classify and assemble lists of people who should be unpersoned. And these lists keep growing all the time, and the number of organizations keeps growing because Facebook created a funding mechanism for these organizations. They created a funding mechanism for the so-called fact-checkers because what a lot of the big tech companies have done is they've outsourced, seemingly outsourced, to the so-called independent organizations that tell them exactly what they want to hear, which is that conservatives have to be censored. Daniel, before we get, um, we're going to go back to our topic in a second, about the military brass's betrayal of our country, because that's the core of what we're going to speak about. But um, right up front here, in order to get past all the censorship, how can people find the stuff that you write? 
How can they find you? In the past, I have told people to Google. I definitely don't advise that these days. Frontpagemag.com is an easy site to remember. It's David Howard's Freedom Center site. David is there. I'm there. A lot of great people are there who are fighting the good fight. Uh, that's where you can find us well, which is the pamphlet I'm talking about today. But there's a ton of really fantastic, important work. Um, and just go there directly, frontpagemag.com. Don't Google because you can't trust Google anymore. Yeah, that's for sure. So just to be clear about that, as I have been saying uh, on these live broadcasts, uh, bring a pencil and paper when you're listening. I'm sorry to have to ask you to do that, but you need to write down these sites so that you can bypass the search and go right to them. And then just make them a regular. Front, frontpagemag.com is a great regular for you to check every day. And so uh, that's how you can get uh, David Horowitz uh, Freedom Center information and Daniel Greenfield, of course, is one of his investigative – it is probably his chief investigative reporter – all right, so Daniel, the military has been uh, going crazy for a while. I was on the uh, Restore Military Religious Freedom Coalition in D.C. for a long time. I still am technically. We just haven't been fighting. Um, we've been dormant, and when we should actually be out there fighting a little bit harder. But we had some great gains during the Obama years. Uh, but it's, it's like a flood now that Joe Biden is president. And I think, you know, when um, Lloyd Austin took office, it just the floodgates opened to chicanery and all kinds of really horrible experimentation with America's military. It had already started with Bill Clinton, and now it's just, just, just accelerated under Joe Biden. But my question for you is, why? what was the thing? What was the issue that really uh, said to you, we have to write about this. This is, this is ridiculous. We have to write about this. What was that? You know, there were uh, any number of things, but really one of the more infuriating things was this video that the Navy put out under Admiral Gilday. Um, this was part of their critical conversations that they initiated uh, during the Black Lives Matter riots last uh, Daniel, year. Um, I'm going to, uh, Daniel, I'm Daniel, let, let me interrupt you because Sorry? the music is playing. I want to come right back with that fresh. Okay, so the video that the, the, the Navy Admiral put out will come right back with that and start the next segment. Daniel Greenfield is my guest. Uh, the, the booklet that he's put together with David Horowitz is Disloyal, How the Military Brass is Betraying Our Country. And that's what we're going to talk about when we return. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Andy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. On the issue of critical race theory, etc., I'll, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders now and in the future do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding 
having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend. And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, antebellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a civil war and emancipation proclamation to change it. And we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know. And I respect your service and you and I are both Green Berets. But I want to know. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military. And I thank you for the opportunity to make a comment on that. All right, that was uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, testifying before Congress. Uh, illustrating that uh, he also, the very white Mark Milley, has the same uh, challenge uh, of discernment and critical thinking as the very black Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. It is not a color thing. Uh, They have a breakdown in their ability to think because it's very different to read a book on Marxism and to implement Marxism in the military. Just one thing that you might say in response. Daniel Greenfield is my guest, and he and uh, David Horowitz have written a booklet called Disloyal, How the Military Brass is Betraying Our Country. You've heard clips now from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Defense Secretary saying ridiculous, outrageous things. But this is where we are. Daniel was telling us before the break uh, that the thing that got uh, was kind of the turning point for him, uh, this, the catalyst for writing this book about disloyalty, was a... Um, movie production by Admiral Gil- Gilday, who is the head of the Navy. So, Daniel, what, what was that, and uh, what was the video about? Yeah, just before I get to that, I want to just briefly comment on that clip. The thing that jumps out at you is Millie's talking about the three-fifths compromise as an example of systemic racism. That's hugely false. It is absolutely ignorant. And it's really striking because Millie has always been built as this guy who was all about history. He always uses these historical analogies, yet he seems to know nothing about American history, or he's openly lying about American history. The Three-Fifths Compromise actually limited the power of slave states. It was not an example of systemic racism. Uh, This is coming from the very top, and it's deeply troubling. Um, Anyway, so the video I actually uh, turned up, uh, again, the stuff is not being hidden. It's not being kept covert or secret. It is out there if you just look for it. It was right there on the official naval site. Um, this was part of the critical conversations that were set off by the Black Hearts Matter riots, and um, all the branches focused on doing their critical conversations. The Navy is arguably the most woke of the branches, and thus it actually uh, pushed the most radical agenda. And in this video, you actually will have um, Gilby introducing service members who are saying that America is suffering from systemic racism, uh, that America is fundamentally biased, that the Navy is fundamentally biased. Uh, you've got one um, horseman saying that we have to stand up for change and that the Navy has to stand on the right side of history and Black Lives Matter. Uh, you've got another person saying that I've become very aware of my privilege as a white person and that America has a history of systemic racism. This is really horrifying, outrageous stuff. This is not coming from a college campus anymore. It's not coming from um, some protesters, uh, chief of protesters, Screaming in Seattle, Portland. This is now the official account, the official leadership of the United States Navy that is pushing this idea, uh, this critical race theory agenda that America is fundamentally racist, that white people are fundamentally racist, 
and that we need to fundamentally transform the country, and that the military needs to be focused on social transformation for America rather than keeping our nation safe from foreign enemies. Do they actually ever say that? It seems to me that they let that part dangle. This whole business of uh, making America's military strong and fighting our enemies, I never hear those discussions. It's, it's every, now, I could be missing them, but every time I hear them say something public, it is a, something that is promoting p- political correctness or social experimentation uh, in all the branches of the government. I don't hear them talking about keeping America safe. Do you? Have I missed that, Daniel? Defense Secretary Austin said that there are four C's that the military has to focus on. China, culture, climate, and COVID. You know, China's in there, but it's just one out of four. The other three are, we're going to fundamentally transform the military socially. Uh, The other one is uh, global warming, environmentalism. And finally, uh, assorted coronavirus vaccine mandates are the one that's coming from the White House. So very little uh, is there is actually focusing on national defense. They just mentioned China. The rest, culture, climate, and COVID, is domestic social agendas, and that is very much out of the face of the new um, Biden administration's approach to the military, which is a carryover from the Obama administration's approach, which is all about making the military into a vehicle for social change, uh, using personnel as a test bed for pushing political agendas, but not actually about defending America against foreign enemies. You know, the Navy was uh, like the when we when the Restore Military Religious Freedom Coalition was at, more active. Uh, it was the Navy that we had to contend with the most. They were the ones that stepped out uh, on the gender issues. Uh, well, and certainly women too, including this is like so ancient history now. Allowing women on, you know, uh, to to be with men uh, in very close quarters in submarines, and then there was an outbreak of pregnancies. And they were on the cutting edge of allowing homosexuality in their ranks of of, uh, um, tolerating a lot of that and of punishing their chaplains for uh, preaching, you know, uh, what the the Bible actually says. There was punishment and release. The the Navy was the worst then. I just think that's interesting, don't you? It's like they were already on a trajectory way far to the left, so this was kind of make the next next natural step for them. It is. The Navy is the most woke of the main branches. And there is a good reason for that. When you look at corporations, um, when you look at universities, when you look at the military, it's always one factor, which is that the more incompetent, the more problematic, the more broken an institution is, the more it's incapable of doing its main job, whether it's educating the youth, um, whether it's actually defending the country, the more it's going to virtue signal and jump on every single social program. The Navy has major structural issues. It is absolutely not ready to take on China. And uh, we know this. There was a recent war game where the Navy actually failed to take on China. This is absolutely the reality. Instead of making fundamental reforms, fundamental changes, uh, they're pushing all this culture stuff, all this virtue signaling. Under Obama, the Navy was very much focused on environmentalism. You were going to have the green fuels. Now it's all about racism. And it notes one distraction or another to cover up the fact that the people at the top, like Admiral Day, are not doing their job. They are not preparing to defend the country. And if they're not, then why do they exist? Well, that's a good, re- that's a good question, Daniel. I, I was just reading, a, this, is, uh, this came out in June, and you might have seen it. It's written by Dakota Wood. Dakota was a, a U.S. Marine Corps. I uh, spent two decades there, and then he's now with the Heritage Foundation. And he wrote an interesting article about his experience with the Marines. Uh, because the, the top brass now are uh, 
pretty much telling us how bad the American military is. That's what they're telling these young recruits also, that this is a racist, horrible place where people have been so mistreated. And you, you know, before I read this Dakota Wood thing, I was thinking about my own father, Daniel, who was raised during the Depression, was drafted when he was 20, uh, fought in World War II, and uh, he was, you know, just a farm boy. Uh, who went off to fight, uh, you know, serve in the CC camps, very poor family, agricultural background, never had been around minorities, not much. And I remember how that, my dad served right along with, you know, he got acquainted with people of other races. And I know blacks were not in the same uh, ranks then, but uh, Mexicans were. And so I just remember his conversations. It was a new experience for him. Uh, there, The military actually, I think, well, let's see if you would agree with me, was strategic in breaking down racial barriers early on. And it was right on the front lines of doing that. That is absolutely very true. This is really an important issue because the military for so long had been bringing people together from across the country, um, integrating them, uh, became the embodiment of what America could be. And this is exactly what is being undermined now. There is a push to segregate uh, to tell people that their experience in the Navy and the Air Force and the military and as a whole is going to be determined by their race. Um, this is the same thing that we've done in colleges, and it's had absolutely disastrous results. It's now being pushed in corporations. Doing it in the military is absolutely a disaster. You can't expect serious military readiness. You can't expect people to work together if you're telling them that they're fundamentally different and that they can't achieve the same things unless we use equity to fundamentally bias the system in their favor. You know, I'm not sure the details of, uh, I don't remember which branch, but I do remember reading recently an article about uh, in training, they're separating in some some branch somewhere, they're separating these uh, soldiers and airmen, whoever they are, whichever branch, uh, into their race and talking to them about their if their privilege and kind of separating them in groups. Are, is this what you are, uh, is this something that you guys address? Yeah, this is the, these are the critical conversations I mentioned. Uh, they were initiated. Again, um, during the Black Lives Matter riots, uh, they began uh, this the so-called stand-down uh, of dealing with this urgent issue of systemic racism, uh, and that meant turning basically officers into community organizers, doing these consciousness raising sessions, um, encouraging people to identify by particular races, joining these affinity groups. All the stuff that we're seeing in, in workplaces was very much uh, pushed in advance into the military uh, under the guise of diversity and inclusion, and it's been absolutely a disaster. Now, let me read this little passage. It's it's uh, pretty lengthy, actually, by Dakota Wood, again, the former Marine, two decades a Marine, and he's describing what he experienced in the Marine Corps. And I think it echoes what uh, I, we've been around a lot of military. Uh, we have I have a lot of military listeners. I have a lot of military family a father-in-law, and, a, you know, just a lot of people, including my own father. Um, and so I know something about the military. I'm not an expert. I've never served, but this has comports with what I've seen. He says, as, he, as a young Marine Corps first lieutenant assigned to an infantry battalion in the late 1980s, I had charge of the unit transport section of operators, mechanics, and supervisors tasked with taking care of our fleet of combat vehicles. This group of Marines, like all with whom I had served over a 20-year military career, was a wonderful cross-section of America representing all walks of life. My maintenance and operations chiefs were American Samoan and American African American, respectively. Our collection of more junior Marines included blacks, whites, Latinos, young men from Texas, New Jersey, California, West Virginia, 
They came from the city and the country, from poor and middle-class families. Some were Catholic, Protestant, and some had no strong affiliation with any organized religion. In the maintenance bay, on the equipment lot, or in the field, we would hear a musical mix of country, rock and roll, heavy metal, and rap. Everyone pitched in to accomplish the mission during unit fitness runs, shop cleanup, preparing for inspections, embarking equipment for deployments to Japan, South Korea, and supporting battalion operations during training and exercise events. Everything just worked, and worked well. Why? Because we were all Marines wearing the same uniform, supporting the same combat organization, serving the same country. We've all been through the same training. We measured up to the same standards. Uh, they humped the same combat loads, ate the same field rations, fired the same qualifications at the rifle range, suffered the same annual refresher training for proper use of gas masks. They worked the same long, long hot hours, sweaty, cold, and damp, sun-baked or frigid, wind-blown field conditions, tolerated the same irritating micromanagement, and enjoyed the same positive leadership interventions from higher headquarters. They were a team. Committed to each other and expecting the same high levels of performance, irrespective of skin color, ethnicity, economic or social background, accent, or taste in music, each shared in the accomplishments of his fellow Marines, and each was quick to take to task any teammate who fell short of the standard. It was wonderful. And that's Dakota Wood uh, writing for um, the Heritage Foundation, his book, uh, his uh, piece, Critical Race Theory Will Destroy Our Military. I just thought it would be good. Daniel, have you ever, were you ever in the military? No, I was not, but that's absolutely beautiful. And it is really what the highest aspirations of our country were. We used to be joining the military, serving, and working together, and now that is being torn apart. Um, what was done to all of our institutions, public, private, is now being done to the military, and it's, a, it's an absolute tragedy. So... Um... In your, this book that you and Dan, uh, David have written called um, Disloyal, How the Military Brass is Betraying Our Country, do you offer any solutions or do you, you kind of uh, speculate as to why this particular group of leaders are doing this? You must. You must talk about all of that stuff. So just what, what is the point of writing this book? So there's a multiplicity of challenges as far as solutions go. Uh, first of all, for too long, Republicans have deferred to uh, whoever has a whoever's a three star or four star. They assume these people know what they're doing, especially if they kind of look and found the parts. Like say, Millie, if you look like you could play Patton in the movie, then it's presumed that you're a tough military guy and you should not be questioned. Uh, that was a huge mistake. Uh, the Trump administration put people in place in the military who were absolutely woke or who were. We're very eager to defer to their agenda, which is the case with Melody, as you know, your audience heard in the clip that you played at the very beginning. Daniel? Uh, people might look and sound tough. They're absolutely woke. All uh, right. They the same. Let's come back with that. Let's come back with that. Uh, your point is really well taken, and I'm sure we can sit here and think of some examples. My guest is Daniel Greenfield, and uh, you can read what he writes at frontpagemag.com, and we'll be right back after this. Sandy Rios in the morning, AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. that Secretary Austin is going to request that the White House allow, a, approve that all U.S. troops 
uh, are now, will now have a mandatory vaccine effective mid-September or uh, once the FDA makes a full recommendation for full authorization of one of the vaccines. Secretary Austin in this memo says that the belief is that that will be coming in the coming weeks. So whichever one happens first. We don't know much beyond that, though, Garrett. Uh, I will say that this if, in fact, the secretary asks for a mandatory vac- covid vaccine for the U.S. military before the vaccine has full authorization from the the FDA, then the White House would have to issue a waiver legally in order for him to be able to make it mandatory for the military. So it's a question of what will come first. We don't have a lot of the of of the this sort of the next level questions of what happens once this becomes mandatory. The biggest one being, well, what if a member of the military refuses to get this vaccine? What would happen to that individual? That's something that we saw happen uh, happen a lot um, after the anthrax vaccine was made mandatory mm-hmm. for service members years ago. It, at the time, was also under an emergency. It was not fully uh, authorized by the FDA. All right. So that's an NBC report of something really current that the military is doing. This is not an issue of wokeness, but is an, an issue of bending the culture to the will of the leaders in Washington by using the military. And so uh, I think the whole rush to now make this, particularly this Pfizer, which seems to be the favored vaccine, uh, fully FDA approved, may have come about because of a letter written by Representative Mark Green and 15 other members of Congress saying to uh, Lloyd Austin that the law of the United States is clear. Mandatory vaccination is illegal for military personnel prior to complete approval. So now suddenly they're seeking complete approval, and it looks like they're going to force it on the members of the military. Daniel, I know that this is not the woke issue, but I just just your comments on what they're doing with that. So we were discussing uh, the attempt to separate uh, service members by race. This is actually one area where there's going to be a lot of common ground. Uh, we've seen in the pushback from healthcare workers who face mandates, a lot of the people pushing back were actually black at a uh, SEIU rally against vaccine mandates for healthcare workers in New York, uh, Sharpton spoke. You had Black Lives Matter shirts because when you actually look at the numbers, black people, um, minorities have a high rate of vaccine refusal. So you're going to have some supporters who are going to have um, just conservative Americans um, that are actually opposed to this. And within the military, you're going to have people on both sides of the racial and political divide in this. And again, I think the people in Washington have absolutely not thought this through. Uh, they're seeing pushback from healthcare workers for mandates um, in New York and California. They're seeing pushback from teachers' unions when it was suggested. Uh, so this is absolutely going to be much more of an epic pushback within the military. And uh, just when they've unrolled this whole strategy of dividing people by race, this is actually something that could bring people together. You know, oh, that's true. That's true. I, I'm, and one other, just an aside that just makes me cringe is, and we, we can't get off on this, I realize, but from my reading and understanding is that there have been a lot of t- terribly adverse reactions. We know this is true because the CDC actually stopped for a bit to s- give a glance at this, of myocarditis in young men uh, who were getting the, the uh, vaccine. They had they were the onset of a lot of heart problems, blood clots, and in young women, the, 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 the danger of uh, fertility problems. And so this, we're talking about a young population if you're talking about the people that are serving so it's just, it's just unbelievable to me that they would be forcing this. 
All right, so you, now let's go back to your booklet, because you're writing about how the military brass is betraying our country. And uh, I was asking you how that happened, and you made a very astute observation that it was like Hollywood cast calling. They would, uh, it seems that past administrations have put people in leadership roles who look the part, but lack the character or substance. And that was your point, I think. It's part of a larger crisis, which is that the people who are increasingly the civilian leadership have very little military experience. Many of them have not served. Uh, It's been a while since we've had a president who actually saw active combat, uh, which means they're actually poorly qualified to understand what's going on in the military. Uh, They look at guys who sound tough and uh, talk tough, uh, but these guys have Ivy League degrees. They came out of prep schools like Millie. Um, These are the people who are partying with a D.C. cocktail crowd. Just because they look the part of patent doesn't remotely mean that they are a patent. And uh, just letting these guys do whatever they want, which Republicans have tended to do, is a huge mistake. There needs to be serious oversight. There needs to be a protection uh, for the civil rights of service members uh, who are confronted with woke stuff, or for that matter, whether it's vaccine mandates or anything else. We also need to reconstruct a military that is actually ready to fight as opposed to pushing social agendas, and that's going to require a major purge at the top, a removal of a lot of the brass. So many of these four-star, three-star generals are politicians. They aspire um, to get a nice job in the defense industry afterwards or a corporate board or running a university. They are not seriously committed to national defense. That's not their main job. Uh, We need to actually bring up people from the lower ranks, people who actually understand what the crisis is and can break up this toxic culture at the very top, which is all about politics and not about military readiness. You know, there's another issue that just occurred to me in this way. Uh, When uh, my my former husband, he was military and his father was military. He fought in World War II and also he went to Vietnam at least two or three times. Uh, So that's on that side of the family. I was just trying to point out that, again, that I have some military acquaintance, and I remember this little poster that used to be on our wall, and it was the kind of the motto of the Army. Our, ours is not the reason why. Our, ours is not to reason why. Ours is just to do or die. Now, at the time, I thought, you know, that sounded really strange to a civilian. But when you serve in the military, you have to be taught to stand down, to forget about your own views, what your particular view of things, and take orders. You have to be able to take orders in an instant, and that means putting aside your individual uh, perspective of what a situation should be. And I finally came to understand that. So it just, isn't it ironic, Daniel, that, um, that Mark Milley was so, um, uh, what's the word, uh, insubordinate to the commander-in-chief when Donald Trump was president, Mark Milley exhibited the very opposite of what America's military people are, are, are trained to do, and that is to work as a group and follow the orders of your leaders. I just That, to me, is, is another way they have betrayed uh, the military and their role as military leaders. It's tragically true. What you said is absolutely the problem. Uh, so many of the top brass are in it for themselves. They're not in it for um, the country. They're not, they're not uh, capable of any kind of meaningful self-sacrifice. Uh, it's a career for them. And this is kind of part of the problem. Uh, it certainly happened through our politics. Um, the people who were supposed to be in D.C. were supposed to be there, and they were supposed to leave as an act of public service. They were not supposed to make politics their career. Obviously, we need career people at the top of the military, but at the same time, uh, the military has become a pathway for people 
looking to get into all sorts of, into politics, into all sorts of lucrative uh, careers after retirement. And now that needs to end. The entanglement between the defense industry, between politics and the military branch is a huge problem. Uh, the basic reality that so many of these people who are looking uh, to get into um, lucrative fields know that they have to parrot uh, the agendas of the left. They know they have to blend in with the D.C. crowd, and that becomes their focus. Uh, so much of the top people at the Pentagon are not there for national defense. They're there to figure out how to blend into the D.C. crowd and um, build their post-retirement careers. Yes, and to take power and to take their place in the power structure when it, to, when it railroads all of America. It's just really it's just amazing. We're, we are really on um, a, a hurl toward Marxism. And that reminds me, I know that you're familiar with the story of Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, who was the former instructor and fighter pilot with the uh, U.S. Space Force, who was fired, or he was forced to resign, I'm not exactly sure. He was removed, whatever that means, because he had written a book about uh, Marxism's goal of conquest and the unmaking of the American military. He wrote the book, and so they removed him. And I'm guessing, Daniel, that there are lots of other stories like that that we, we don't know about. So many people in the military, so many good people face this kind of tough choice. When these orders come down, am I going to speak out? Am I going to say something about it? Or am I just going to be there? Am I just going to stay quiet? I'm just going to follow orders and hope this all blows over. And the people who take those risks uh, the way that he did, um, there's, a, there's a huge price to pay because uh, you've got a vision of a particular place you want to be. You reached a particular place in the career ladder, and you know that you have to be a good team player. You have to reflect uh, what the brass is telling you in order to get ahead. Uh, even the sentencing in any way is dangerous, but certainly uh, speaking publicly about it, there is a high price to pay. This is really what they, we were talking about at the very beginning of the program. This is what happens when you actually speak out. This is what many Americans are being told in the workplace, um, whether it's civilian or military. If you speak out, you will pay a very high price. Since you describe, you know, your, your, your experience and your background in understanding Marxism, because you do, you said your mother was a Russian dissident, and of course Daniel Horowitz was a radical leftist, red diaper baby, his parents were communists, so that's how he knows about it. Um, how, do you see, how do you see this playing out where, in regard to Marxism? What is the connection? Draw the, draw the parallels on the line so that people can understand clearly uh, what the end game is here. But one thing that David Horowitz likes to say, that the issue, whatever it is, is really the revolution. Uh, Marxism's goal is to disrupt, bring down, uh, criticize, and tear apart society in order to replace it with their own power structures. So they don't remotely care about any of the issues they're advocating for. How much gay rights did any uh, communist country have? Uh, their unions were a farce and a joke that were controlled at the very top. Uh, their feminism was even more of a joke. They, had, they provided none of the rights that they clamored for in the West in their own system because they're not actually committed to identity politics to any of these things. Uh, for example, the black Americans who went to the Soviet Union made a huge mistake and most of them were killed because the Soviet Union was actually incredibly racist. So Marxist communist systems do not remotely abide by any of the things they claim are the issues. What they're doing is they're looking for fifth columns. They're looking for any foothold to criticize, disrupt, and say, that the society you have is wrong, it's fundamentally evil, it's systemically racist. We need to fundamentally transform it by uh, imposing our own system on it. This is, ev this is behind everything they do. And you know, uh, General Noe said that he read about communism, he read Marx. 
he clearly didn't understand that any more than he understood the Seaforth Compromise, because otherwise he would not be collaborating with this woke crew of the military of the United States. Boy, that's a good point. It's like, how in the world could he read, if he did read, about Marxism and be cooperating the way he's co- cooperating? It makes no sense at all. It really, it, he either is dumb or he's very wicked, and he could be both. I don't know. But, you know, uh, the thing of it is, Daniel, you know, the Marxists make us feel, and this is part of their psychological warfare with us, that it's a, it's a fait accompli. They've, they've got it all. They're, it's too late. Uh, it, there's no use to resist. But that's actually not true. I mean, the Soviet Union did finally fall. Communism, the, the walls did come down, and their freedom rushed into the Soviet Union. You could argue about how free they are now, but they are freer than they were. And Romania, I think of Ceausescu, how, what an iron grip he had. And it finally, he lost his grip. I think about West and East Germany. I used to live in Berlin. The wall came down. So it's, is it an, it's really not inevitable, is it? It's absolutely not inevitable. We used to understand that. Evil always destroys itself. You know, it can destroy itself or we can actually destroy it. Those are the two choices that we face. Uh, we don't want to actually wait around for evil to destroy itself because the casualty rate there, uh, whether it's in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, is really, really high. Uh, what we want to do is actually destroy it. And the way to do that is to actually understand, first of all, what it does. Uh, second of all, is to do what it does in the sense of organizing, preparing, and building our own networks. What the left does is actually it goes into an institution, it builds networks, um, it, it coordinates all those people together in revolutionary self-fashion, and it expands that coordination as much as it can, and it takes over. You know, this is something that it does over and over again. We know this is exactly how it does it. I mean, we've been studying this for over a century, yet conservatives still la- seem to lag behind when it comes to doing this, and you get all these questions. How do we counter it? Well, this is actually what we have to do. Well, I think so, too. Of course, I think the, the, the secret ingredient to me, Daniel, is that the most, uh, so many of the people that are resisting are people, are people of the book, as, uh, the, as the Islamists would say, are people who believe in God. And, um, and so they, they live their lives. They don't think they have to control every bit of it because they believe that there's something greater than themselves that is the factor there. And so they don't worry like the left does to try to control every jot and tittle and fearing for, you know, death in the future. And so it's a very, it's like it really is two worlds. Uh, but I think it, it, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say uh, that we have, our God is great. He's great. And he's aware of all of this. And we will fight in his name. And I think we, uh, I think we can still win this. And I'm certainly not going to quit fighting. And I don't think you and David Horowitz are either. By the way, you can get Daniel's writings at frontpagemag.com, frontpagemag.com. Daniel Greenfield, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Sandy Rios in the morning.